This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Two parties, zero results. That's how the Centrist Project describes this country's two-party system. The national group wants to elect independents who don't answer to any party. And the project is now solely focused on Colorado. They've even moved their headquarters here. Nick Troiano is the Centrist Project's executive director. Welcome to the program. Good to be with you, Ryan. This is a model that you want to carry nationally. But here in Colorado, I just checked the latest voter registration numbers. There are roughly 1.2 million unaffiliateds, more than there are registered Democrats or Republicans. And yet you point out there's not a single independent in Colorado's legislature. Uh, Why is that a problem in your mind? Well, as you point out, independents are the largest and fastest growing segment of the electorate. And it's largely because voters are fed up with both parties that don't seem to be serving the people and instead serve themselves. And the only thing that both parties seem to agree on, actually, is to make it really tough for anyone else to compete with them. And so they've rigged the rules in their own favor. We see that with how they've gerrymandered districts here in the state, and we've seen that with how they've made it tougher for independents to compete. So that's why there are 1.3 million independents, but not a single out of 100 in the state legislature. And that's what we aim to change at the Centrist Project by building a new electoral vehicle to provide support to people who want to run unaffiliated and untethered to either political party. And why is that better for Colorado and eventually the country? Well, Why it's better for the public to have independence in office is so that we have leaders who are representing and are responsive to them and not the party bosses and not the special interests. As we've just seen in this last session, the polarization of the legislature has prevented progress on some of the big issues facing the state. Like what? Well, let's look at infrastructure for one. There's $9 billion of identified improvements needed in the state. Yet both parties couldn't figure out a way to fund those needed investments, which will have a direct impact on the future prosperity that will be shared among people who live in Colorado. And yet there was bipartisan agreement on a budget. There was bipartisan agreement on a measure that did free up some money for uh, transportation. So it's not as if nothing is going on at the state capitol. Sure. What, we, what we've seen mostly is half measures. And what we've seen is the illusion of bipartisanship, which is the idea of just being able to do the minimum necessary to avert a crisis. We need to get big things done. And big things happen with big majorities of both parties coming together. And that is a long and strong history here in Colorado. But that's been changing over the past decade. The state legislature is now more polarized than any time in its history, and it's the most polarized state legislature in the country. So in our view, there are good people there, but trapped in a fundamentally broken system. And only sending Democrats and Republicans back would be the definition of insanity to expect anything to change. All right. So this this idea that Colorado's legislature is the most divided uh, came out from a political science professor uh, not too long ago, uh, whom we spoke with on this program, there are those who who don't think that's true and who say actually that the past session is is evidence that there is some common ground. But when you say there are half measures happening at the Capitol and there need to be big measures, uh, big policies, someone might inherently hear in that 
um, a democratic or a liberal idea of government spending. Is that what you're saying? Uh, no, I, I don't think this is ideological at all. This is about problem solving. And what unites independence is a similar approach to governance. It is about putting country and community before party. It is about thinking for ourselves to take the best ideas no matter where they come from. And it's about using facts and common sense to solve problems and working collaboratively to actually find some common ground. Isn't the state solving this on its own because Colorado passed an open primary law that is supposed to allow unaffiliated voters to pick a party and vote in that party's primary, presumably to get candidates into the general election who are more moderate? Well, I think independents and voters are beginning to flex their muscles in saying that we need some structural political reforms. And so it will be great that independents can for the first time vote in in, uh, primaries of the party. But the next step is to make sure the independents actually have some representation in the legislature as well. Well, let's talk about how you want to achieve that and, and frankly, who you want to achieve that. Um, what, what is the profile of the kind of candidate you'd like to have run in Colorado? And we'll talk about what your ground game will be in just a bit. Sure. We're looking for leaders of integrity, people who believe in the power of public service and who actually want to solve problems and represent their community. Wouldn't everybody at the state capitol say that about themselves? I think some politicians are more in it uh, for themselves uh, to maintain and grow their own political power. And that is why a lot play the partisan game. And that is why good people go there, but they're sucked into a bad system. Uh, The idea of having a few independents in the legislature are people who aren't beholden to the same interests and parties and who have some incentive to be the bridge builders. And the interesting thing about the legislature here in Colorado is that it's so narrowly divided that in the state Senate, for example, just one or two independents could actually deny both parties a majority and then use that leverage to force compromise because neither side would be able to ram anything through on a strict partisan line. So the idea here is not to necessarily pack the state House or the state Senate with independents, but to have enough to create what I think the the brainchild behind the centrist project calls the fulcrum strategy. So uh, the the person who dreamed this up is Dartmouth professor and former correspondent at The Economist, Charles Whelan, and he wrote a book called The Centrist Manifesto. Explain uh, in a little bit more detail that fulcrum strategy. The fulcrum is an idea of how to sort of hack the two-party system where a small group of people would have disproportionate uh, leverage and influence because of how narrowly divided the body is. So if you imagine the two or three independents who can be in the state Senate, they could challenge both parties in any particular issue, be it health care or education. Put forward your best idea and we'll swing our votes to the one that comes closest to an actual pragmatic solution. So you are actively looking at districts in Colorado where you think independents would do well. Uh, these tend to be open seats, I understand, as opposed to running against an incumbent. And w- will you have some kind of litmus tests to prove that someone is centrist? Or uh, tell me more about the profile of the candidate you're recruiting. Sure, there's no litmus test. We're, as I said, we're looking for people of integrity who are independent who want to serve their communities. And we have already begun reaching out to hundreds of people across the state who are leaders in their community, encouraging them to run for office, explaining that we are building the infrastructure and supporter network and donor community to help them run if they want to do so without being tethered to a party. Would you, would you name here some districts that you're targeting? Well, we're keeping that close, uh, close to the chest okay. for now, in part because we want to be able to recruit the candidates and be able to announce a slate in the next few months. And 
We have a lot of people going to centristproject.org slash Colorado to either say I'm interested in running or to nominate someone that they thought would, they think would be a really great leader. And so we're in conversations with dozens of people across the state about this unique opportunity to make a really big difference at a moment of a real crisis of governance in both our state and our country. So does this person who runs um... – <sighs> Do they have a strong view of, I don't know, social issues or the economy or what? Well, as being a centrist independent, they are likely to be people who are both fiscally and environmentally responsible, not having to choose between the two. Uh, They're socially tolerant. They believe in good governance. They're for economic growth but believe in a strong safety net for folks too. It is the idea that there are lots of people who feel politically homeless right now because of the intense ideology and dogma on both sides that force us to make arbitrary binary decisions on a consistent basis. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're talking about the work of the Centrist Project, which has relocated to Colorado to get independents elected here, first to the state legislature. Its executive director is Nick Troiano. And uh, Nick, uh, you, you don't then have the party structure here, but you don't have the party money either. Uh, I gather you are fundraising uh, with the idea then of helping these potential candidates as you groom them. Yes. And we've built a supporter network of now thousands of people across the state. We formed what was called a small donor committee. So people are chipping in 50 bucks at a time to make sure that we have the resources to be able to compete with both parties. Who's giving you money? Do your donors tell us about your political ideology? Well, we disclose all of our major donors on our website. A lot of them in Colorado and across the country um, are entrepreneurs who see a opportunity in the political marketplace for new competition. Because right now, a strong plurality of voters don't identify as Democrats or Republicans. A majority of voters have an unfavorable view of both parties. If this were any other industry, there would be some new competition and a new competitor. Uh, The reason why there's not yet is because the barrier to entry is high, and it's going to take an organization like the Centrist Project to break through and gain a foothold. And that's what our objective is to do in 2018 here in Colorado, with the objective of not only making a strong and positive difference here in the state, but proving a model that can be scaled all across the country once Colorado shows it can be done. Now, this is interesting. Let's say two or three independents make it into, I don't know, the Colorado Senate. Wouldn't they still have to operate in the party structure, though? In other words, uh, they would play some role in electing leadership And that means that they might caucus with the Republicans or the Democrats. Is this idea of entirely leaving the party behind um, not so black and white? It will be up to them to decide how to function. They can become a caucus unto themselves and then decide who is the new Senate president who may be the person to drive consensus rather than just drive a partisan agenda. This has already happened in the Alaska State House, where two independents were elected in 2016. They decided to help form a new bipartisan governing coalition that includes Democrats and Republicans, such that no bill can pass without having bipartisan support. And they've been successful in passing legislation to address their state's historic budget deficit. And they give us some hope that the same can be done here. Uh, with the right leaders who step up to run in 2018. Is the only measure of success come 2018 that an independent is elected or or are are there gradients 
perhaps even before that. Stunningly, an independent has never been elected to the Colorado state legislature. So success for us is demonstrating. You've looked all the way back, uh, even like to the territorial legislature. This has never happened. Yes. And so success is proving it can be done because once we demonstrate it can be done, I think it begins to engineer hope that we're not just stuck with the lesser of two evils choice anymore, that there's a viable alternative. And that's really what people are arrested for. And the polls bear it out. People's registration bear it out. uh, And it's critical that we be able to introduce some new competition into our system because it's only getting worse. I think that your original goal was to do this with the U.S. Senate. Um, Obviously, the money is much bigger in those races. But why did you change direction? We actually expanded our focus. Uh, We're still talking to credible, viable candidates who are interested in running or who are already running for both governor and Senate as independents across the country. Uh, We just convened a retreat in Philadelphia two weeks ago to bring together a dozen of these folks who are giving it good thought. So 2018, we think, can be the breakthrough year uh, for independents because voters are fed up and frustrated with the status quo and something's got to change. Okay, we'll likely have you back on perhaps as candidates and districts emerge and then certainly uh, to take stock. Nick, thank you for being with us. Thank you. Nick Troiano, executive director of The Centrist Project, now relocated to Colorado, and its goal is to elect independent candidates. Throughout much of his life, Eric Kahn searched for the family that saved him from the Nazis. Kahn hid in their basement when he was a kid. He'd been separated from his parents at age four. They were sent to Auschwitz. We are documenting the stories of Holocaust survivors in the state. And Eric Kahn, who lives in Denver, is in our studio now. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Ryan, for having me this morning and also to Colorado Public Radio. You were born in Mannheim in southwestern Germany. You were about two and a half when you and your family were forced into a refugee camp in France in 1940. Your sister was even younger. She was only months old. I understand you don't have any memories of your hometown, nor of that camp. What uh, is your first memory of the war? My first memory is of being in the basement of my French Christian rescue family, who took me in uh, at great risks and saved my life. What images stand out from that time in the basement? The main message I had a garden-level window I could look out of, and I was able to see the Nazis' boots marching up and down outside, and very scary for me. They would come by the house? They would walk by. Fortunately, they never uh, attempted to come into the house to search the house, because if they had, I certainly would not be alive today to talk about it. But you were just four at this time. So I'm thinking you didn't have necessarily a profound understanding of the the global forces at play. Did you fully understand why you were in the basement? I was pretty confused, although my French Christian rescue family had spoken to me about uh, being as quiet and still most of the time and not to attract the attention attention of anyone outside. What was your relationship with the family? How often would you see them? And did you have regular communication? I looked forward to seeing uh, them at mealtime most of the time. 
uh, and they spent as much time as they could in that basement with me. Um, and it, I felt very loving and taken care of. They were a part of the resistance in France. And um, did they have kids? As a matter of fact, that's another part of what I consider to be a miracle. They had two children of their own who were a little bit older than I was, and they had to make sure that their children did not talk about the little boy downstairs with their friends, because if they had, word would have gotten out. The Nazis would have searched the house. I would have been discovered. And not just me, but the whole family would have been taken away and most likely have wound up in a concentration camp. How often did you get to go outside and just feel the air on your skin? I didn't get to go outside very often, mostly at night when the Nazis had bedded down for the night. My family did take me out and I was able to be outside and and enjoy the fresh air. So it was members of the French resistance who had smuggled you and your sister out of that camp in France and to these homes. Uh, Nazi troops raided the camp and sent everyone, including your parents, to Auschwitz. Your mother went immediately to the gas chamber. I can't imagine how difficult a decision it was for your parents to part with their children. You are a parent. So, so looking back at that, what do you think of their choice? Well, let me say to you that I have a hard time really comprehending uh, how they came to that decision. But if they had not done that, and it certainly was a very difficult and wrenching decision to have to make for any parent, but they made that decision. And if they had not done that, I would have been on that same train that they were on on September the 16th, 1942, which took them to Auschwitz. And I, as a four-and-a-half-year-old child, my sister as a two-and-a-half-year-old, would not have survived. You and your sister were separated after being smuggled out of the French camp, and you later learned that she was about 10 miles from you. Um, You lived in that French family's basement for almost two years. Is that right, Eric? That's correct. And the interesting thing is that, as you say, she was less than 10 miles away from me. I had no idea, nor did my French family have any idea that she was there. Um, We were reunited in 1944 in an orphanage outside of Paris. And that happened because, like the Nazis, who unfortunately kept very accurate and very detailed records, the French resistance also kept very accurate and detailed records which meant that my French Christian rescue family, when the Nazis no longer occupied that part of France, had to give me up. And thus the reunification with your sister was not by accident. That was a function of of careful record-keeping. But would you have recognized your sister those years later? As a matter of fact, I did not. I happened to be in the infirmary of that orphanage where we were reunited They brought my sister in and introduced us together as sister and brother. How was that? 
it felt very strange because I had no idea or remember that I had a sister. Your mother was murdered at Auschwitz, but your father survived, and Soviet forces liberated that death camp in January 1945. You and your sister reunited with him in Germany. How did that time in Auschwitz change your father and affect his ability to care for two children in in what I have to imagine was just a wake of trauma and grief? He had survived Auschwitz, and physically he was okay. And he never, ever talked about what he had to do to survive. He told us a mother had died. He would not talk about her. And he really had suffered tremendously, uh, traumatically. Um, We lived with him uh, for about four years. He chose to begin early on to decide to send us to America to a better life. And I feel that he did that because he really wasn't sure how to take good care of us, even though he wanted to. And he also wanted to go on with his life because I also feel that my sister and I reminded him daily of our mother. Oh, my goodness, yeah. And that had to be very, very difficult for him. Was he affectionate? He tried to be. And he took very good care of us. He did have a German housekeeper who assisted him in taking care of us. At the time I was eight, my sister was six. Um, do you remember your mother at all? Or is it that you remember her through the stories you were told about her? I really have no memory of my mother, although I would like to say that the kind of person that I feel I've become, I attribute to her. She was, as I have learned, a very loving parent, and um, I just give a lot of credit to her, even though I only had four and a half years with her, for who the person I've become. I guess what I'm hearing and what you're saying there is that your your biology is her. Your your body is part her, your mind is part her and in Absolutely. in that way you have a bond. Yes, yeah. very definitely. This is Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner and my guest is Eric Kahn who survived the Holocaust because when he was very young his parents made a tough decision to separate from him. He was sheltered in the basement of a French Christian family uh, that protected him from the Nazis. His parents, though, uh, were sent to Auschwitz. His mother was killed almost immediately there. His father survived. Um, Your father wasn't sure that he could take good care of you after what he'd experienced in the war and the fact that you two reminded him so much of his of his late wife. And so you and your sister came to the U.S. in 1950 without your father. This was under the Displaced Persons Act. Congress passed it to allow people displaced by the Nazis to come to the U.S. And you lived with your grandparents in Pueblo. You were about 12, lived there for several years. But it became difficult for them to care for you both, uh, you and your sister. So you eventually ended up back in an orphanage. Is that right? That's correct. Let me say, if I may, Ryan, that my grandparents and my mother's five brothers and sisters, my aunts and uncles, had managed to get out of Germany in 1939. 
They promised our family they would do all they could to get us out, which of course did not happen. So we arrived in Pueblo, Colorado, where my grandparents lived in the spring of 1950. We lived with them for three years. They got too old to take care of us. They retired to New York. They sent my sister and I to Denver. My sister lived in two foster homes that did not work out for her. I lived in one foster home that did not work out for me. So we both wound up in an orphanage in West Denver, where we each lived until we graduated high school. I think so often of how orphanages are depicted in movies, and I think that they sound like a terrible place. Was that true of the orphanage in Denver? As a matter of fact, definitely not. Let me say that in terms of the orphanage in Denver, for the first time in my life, I felt really happy and content. The administrator of that orphanage, Jack Gerstensen, made it a point to give me the opportunities to become independent. He allowed me to work evenings at a supermarket. He eventually allowed me to get a driver's license and buy my own car. And he encouraged me to go to college. You eventually uh, went on to graduate from CU Boulder, got married, worked as a certified public accountant. So it sounds like he paved the way for all of that. But it's so interesting to be in an orphanage and not actually be an orphan. You, you had a living father at that time. Uh, did you feel resentment towards him? You know, when my sister and I first came to America... I was very angry and very upset because once again we were being sent away and this time I felt that that should not have happened. So as a 12-year-old, I was very angry with my dad. As it turns out, of course, I've had a very good life and I'm glad that he made the choice to send us to America. Did you ever see him again? As a matter of fact, I did. When we first came to America, my sister and I corresponded by mail with my dad. He got remarried. We did lose contact with him. I happened to be back in Germany for the first time in 1970. I was able to look him up. I spent one evening with him. Mm. He then died of natural causes in 1975. What was that reunion reunion like for you? Okay. It was not what I hoped it would be. Um, We talked about the weather. We talked about the stock market. Uh, It was very non-personal. And uh, I felt like I would never really connect with him as a son and father should. Did the anger you felt coming to the United States dissipate? In other words, when you sat in that room with him, did you have more compassion for his decision? Not until later years. Okay. As I grew up and became an adult, most definitely, yes. You were going to mention your sister, and I interrupted you. My sister uh, never saw him again from the day we came to America. Hmm. Uh, your sister has, has passed on, is that correct? As a matter of fact, unfortunately, she has. 
she was able to reconnect with the family that sheltered her in their basement in France. But you were not able to track down yours, despite all of the good record keeping that you said the resistance had? Right. Uh, over the years, I have searched and researched to try and find my French Christian rescue family. In 1983, with the help of the French consulate, we found a woman by the name of Jacqueline Pondy, who had sheltered my sister during the war. She was living in Macedonia at the time. And the wonderful, exciting thing that happened was that my sister and she were reunited in Paris in 1983. I've never found my rescue family. And that's a real loss in my life. It's something that you would still hope to do. Are there any clues? Is there a, a piece of paperwork that would unlock this for you? Not that I'm aware of. No. You've scoured, in other words. Yes. You say that you have really no memory of your mother who died at Auschwitz. Do you have visual memory of the family that protected you? Do you, do you remember faces? or? Did, did Not any, really. Uh-huh. Over all this time, that has also faded. You did not talk to your own children about your experience in the war and uh, essentially being rescued from the the Nazis, saved uh, by this family. You didn't talk about that until much later in their lives. Is that right? As a matter of fact, my older son and my daughter, I did not divulge or share my experiences with them until they were teenagers. And actually, it took many years for me to start talking about what I've gone through. Uh, Unlike Elie Wiesel, who who vowed for 10 years that he would not talk about his experience as a survivor in Auschwitz. Now, since then, beginning in 1991, for the last 26 years, I have had a mission. One of the missions in my life has been to speak to well over 100,000 students, to help educate them about what discrimination, bigotry, and hatred can lead to, as well as to remind adults like myself of what that can lead to. I want to talk more about that message today, given the current political climate, but why, why do you think you stayed silent for so long? The reason that I did is because when I first came to America as a 12-year-old, I wanted to be like other children. I wanted to be American. So even in high school, when I've developed some very close friends who I'm in contact with even today, I did not share that with them at all until much, much later. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with Holocaust survivor Eric Kahn of Denver, who was just a boy during World War II and whose parents really saved his life by making the tough decision to separate from him. And uh, it was a, a French Christian family who sheltered he and his sister, uh, two different families, uh, and protected them from the Nazis. Have you been to Auschwitz where your mother died? As a matter of fact, I have. My wife and I, several years ago, made a journey that I had wanted to make for a long time 
to retrace my steps and to retrace my parents' steps. So I went back to Mannheim, where I had contacted the mayor and, and a historian who showed us around. This is where your family originally came from? Yes. I went back to Camp Gers, this the was camp the... in southern France, right, right. Uh, which today exists as an overgrown forest, although there is a cemetery there where 1,000 people lost their lives. And I spent some time there. And the reason it's, it's become an overgrown forest is because after the, the war, the de Gaulle government chose to raise these holding camps and plant trees. I went back to the orphanage outside of Paris and spent some time there. And we wound up in Auschwitz for me to say a final goodbye to my mother. Were you able to find out what happened to her exactly there? You know, again, one of the things that the Nazis did is to keep very accurate and detailed records. So there is documentation that she was sent to the gas chamber and died. And that was pretty quickly after arriving? Yes. Mm-hmm. So that trip was really a retracing of your unsettled childhood. Absolutely. Of all the different places you were shipped to and from. Yes. And that your parents were shipped to and from. Yes. I want to say that we set up this interview months ago. Um, At the time, you said you were worried about political rhetoric in this country around immigration in particular. A lot has happened since we first reached out to you. In Charlottesville, some Unite the Right demonstrators bore Nazi symbols. They chanted things associated with the Nazi party. What effect did that have on you? Okay, although I would like to expand on that, let me say that I was appalled and horrified about what happened in Charlottesville, Virginia. Even more so, I was angry with some of the statements that our president has made in the days following what happened in Charlottesville. What what statement do you point to in particular? The one that comes to mind, which occurred on the following Tuesday, is when our president said that there are good people on both sides, that there are good people who are part of white supremacist groups, neo-Nazis, the Ku Klux Klan, and members of other hate groups. And I've been very angry about that. You can't see from your vantage point that that is the case, given that you experienced what you did. Absolutely not. And this notion uh, that the president has also said that racism is evil while also placing blame on, quote, both sides. He did call the driver of the car that killed a 32-year-old woman a disgrace to his family and to this country. Uh, Those statements uh, did not assuage you. Not after what he said in regard to good people being in those groups. And if I may, I'd like to expand on all of that if there is time. Sure. As an immigrant and as a U.S. citizen, I have been 
I've been very displeased with all that this administration has done and is doing. From the very beginning, the administration has attempted to impose a total ban on Muslim immigrants from seven different countries. There has been a record number of immigrants living in our country who have been detained and deported this year. Some, of course, rightfully have been deported because of committing serious crimes. But there are many other immigrants who have been productive and have contributed to our country who have also been deported. You know, for so many, this issue is about safety, though, Eric Kahn, and, and protecting the country from events that have happened elsewhere that are uh, quite grisly. That is not the agenda of this administration, as far as I'm concerned. And I also want to add that this administration has attacked and continues to attack the press, calling the press the enemy of the people. They have brought in senior advisors who are racist and anti-Semitic, one of whom has direct ties to white supremacists. They have suppressed and demoted client scientists at the EPA and other scientists at other government agencies. I'd like to bring this back to the the, uh, speeches that you give Um, the presentations you give about your experience. Does that message feel important to you, perhaps more important today than than it has in the past? Absolutely. And that's why I, I speak, like I've said before, to students over and over and over again to educate them as to what all this can lead to. Now, having, I'm sorry, having said all that, and I could say even more, I am encouraged by a number of congresspeople and U.S. senators, some in this president's own party, who have stood up and have spoken out against this administration. And I have great faith in our democracy. What is your relationship to Judaism today, Eric Kahn? Let me say that I do not practice any religion. I try to live my life by doing unto others as I would have them do unto me. And I, I rationalize this by saying that, after all, I am Jewish, but I was rescued and saved by a French Christian family. How has that affected your own um life, I I don't know, how you treat people, how you interact with people? Again, uh, I try to lead a very positive life. I try to be helpful to others. My wife and I have have both protested as possible against what the administration is doing and is trying to do. Thank you for sharing your story with us. We appreciate it. Thank you, Ryan, for having me. It's Denver Holocaust survivor Eric Kahn. You can listen to more of my conversations with Holocaust survivors in Colorado at cprnews.org. This is Colorado Matters.
Marijuana growers use a lot of electricity, which frustrates Denver because the city wants to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. CPR's energy and environment reporter Grace Hood looks at how the city and the industry are taking this issue on together. It's not the first place you'd pick to grow plants. Cramped, windowless rooms inside the Colorado Harvest Company hum with air conditioning and artificial lights. But early pot growers set up nearly all their operations like this. CEO Tim Cullen says over the years he's tried everything to improve efficiency. We've tried lots of different lights, plasma lights, induction lights, LED lights. LEDs have replaced traditional bulbs in homes, street lights, and headlamps on cars, but not for indoor agriculture. Really, anyone who will give us a light to test out will test it out. Cullen approaches a new LED test area with small marijuana plants. He says the technology has changed so dramatically that he'll replace some of his fluorescent lights with new LED tubes that are twice as efficient. It's a big deal for Cullen, who pays a whopping $13,000 a month to grow marijuana here. For the first time in four years, I'm looking forward to that bill going down a little bit. I bet it drops several thousand dollars a month. It's a win for Colorado Harvest Company. It's also a win for Denver. The city started following the issue several years ago when it found marijuana grows accounted for nearly half of the city's 1% uptick in electricity use. Emily Backus at Denver's Department of Environmental Health says that causes friction with the city's carbon reduction goal, 80% by 2050. They raised a lot of eyebrows and it helped us you know, push forward and say we need to keep working on this. A new city report explains how the industry can save energy on lights and cooling. Denver's also asked Excel Energy to provide the most recent electricity use from marijuana operations. LED lights are more efficient, but they're a lot more expensive. In some places, like Washington State, utilities offer generous rebates. It's cheaper for us to provide incentives to reduce energy usage at our customers than it is for us to put in new power plants. Dave Montgomery works with Puget Sound Energy, a utility in the Seattle area. Their LED rebates cover up to 70 percent of the new cost of lighting. Compare that to Excel Energy in Colorado. It covers up to 40 percent of a new LED lighting project. Montgomery says he fields calls every day. We we continue to see a a steady stream of, of customers coming online and approaching us for energy efficiency incentives. Growers are also motivated because the price of recreational pot is plummeting. Industry consultant Jacob Pulitzer says that's prompting a lot of grows to revisit their energy costs. I think that we're going to see with market pressures that, you know, indoor grows is kind of going to, I wouldn't necessarily say dying out, but it's going to change dramatically. In five or ten years, the future of marijuana could look more like this. Today, it's a sunny day. All the lights are off. We're using the sunlight. Green Dragon President Ryan Milligan enters a giant Denver marijuana greenhouse. Sun streams in through a clear roof. It's ten times the size of Cullen's indoor operation. Milligan says here, lights run 80% less than his indoor facility. That's uh, good, definitely good for a cost standpoint and which you know helps us deliver a lower cost to the consumer. Milligan says there was a steep learning curve to retool a vegetable greenhouse for marijuana cultivation. Early on, they had to re-roof the entire greenhouse with panels to let in more light. 
three years later, he says the pain was worth it. You know, I think we're basically through that now and starting to reap those rewards or at least try to. In a few years, Colorado's marijuana grow industry may look a whole lot more like traditional agriculture, with greenhouses and field crops leading the way. I'm Grace Hood, CPR News. Finally today, country music fans know country music is more than one thing. There is honky-tonk, Nashville countrypolitan, red dirt country, the Bakersfield sound, and the list goes on. Well, add to that list what one Denver country rock band calls the Hashville sound. A not-so-subtle nod to legalized pot here. This is U.S. Tigers with the song Ode to Ennui. This is U.S. Tigers and their song Ode to Ennui. And that's Colorado Matters for today. You can subscribe to the CM Podcast through your favorite podcast service, including iTunes. We're also on NPR One. And there are any number of ways to reach out about what you heard or stories you hope we'll cover on Twitter, at Colorado Matters, Facebook, CPR News, or head over to the website, cprnews.org, and click Contact at the top of the page. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters. From CPR News, thanks for being with us. If change is the only constant, tell me why is it so damn hard just killing time?